All right, this is a special episode of the East as a Podcast, Tanky Group Therapy, episode number four. We've managed to do this East as a Podcast without the host of East as a Podcast, Sina, ducked out at the absolute last minute in a brilliant, Classic Sina. brilliant entrepreneurial move. Um, <laughs> and I, I just respect, I respect it. I respect yeah. it. So this is also going on the Anti-Empire Project, and it is going to go on The Brief. So this is a special episode cross-posted everywhere. If you've subscribed to all three, and I know there are a few of you who do, yeah. you're just going to see it everywhere <laughs> you look. And that's just how Sorry. it's going to be. That's how it's going to be. So Tanky Group Therapy is basically a go-around. It is a go-around. We introduce ourselves. We talk about what we've been thinking about, and we try to mutually support each other because this is one of the, one of the darkest times of all of our lives. And uh, and we're not even there, which is like uh, part of the frustration, I suppose. But um, so here we are. I have with me Matteo Capasso. I have Nora Barrows Friedman and I have John Elmer. Everybody, I think, knows Matteo recently hosted an episode of, of East of the Podcast. Nora and John are on the Electronic Intifada live streams. They're on the brief. So, you know, anytime you want to check these out, we will be... We will be churning out the content, as Sina likes to uh, Sina likes to say. So, Matteo, we will start with you. We we just watched you on Rania Kalik's show, Dispatches. You talked about where this is all going in terms of the West um, and fascism in Europe. Why don't you give us, you know, if you want to give us a little summary of what you said there, but also like what you've been watching since then. Thanks guys for organizing this you know to be really relentless and organize these sessions because uh, i'm just gonna go uh, first on the fact that uh, i was a little bit of reluctance of myself in uh, you know showing my face when uh, this whole thing started for a personal reason mostly i have to say that uh, you know the attacks out there are strong i don't really care professionally but you know we all see how much this is going to and i think this is going to impact all of us in the long run so you know it's really something that yeah but we know we need to be on the right side of history so there you go first thing that i have to say is the on an emotional level you know the amount of anger uh, powerlessness and pain i'm often in pain I have to admit that, you know, I can't say I'm not in pain and I need to be able to share this with you guys because, you know, we, yes, we try to provide analysis, we try to understand what's happening out there, but uh, like everybody who's watching what it's unfolding is just fucking tremendous, to, you know, to witness. It's not easy. So the struggle, uh, you know, makes us human, reminds us that we're human beings, otherwise we can't do the struggle. And on the basis of that, just a quick summary of what I did with Rania on dispatches, uh, you know, on the interview, I think that the main message that I was trying to get across is that uh, and what I'm seeing, especially in the context in which I'm operating, which is Europe and Italy and, you know, partly the US having a lot of comrades that people forget the centrality of the Israeli, of Israel and the Zionist entity to imperialism. So basically, reminding ourselves how much the Palestinians have struck a blow, a direct blow to a key cog into the realism. And so this is not about one state, two states, three states, four states, that's, or just, you know, it goes way beyond the question of uh, 
I mean, it, it's not only about uh, national liberation of Palestine, but it's also how much the Palestinians are facing an imperialist structure in this battle. And that, to me, is, uh, is key because for everybody who's trying to understand and wants to take a principled political position on, uh, on this, I think this is where history can guide us. This is where we need, really need this kind of materialist analysis to tell us, okay, let's look at the region. This is not just about oil. This is about de-developing the region and at the same time, making sure you can control the flow of oil and all the rest, you know. And each region in the world has, has undergone different, you know, changes. We're seeing so much this kind of genocidal drive to kill everything, everybody. It's ethnic cleansing. But it's not something unique to Israel. It's the history of the West. And this is, again, group therapy. Why do you go to therapy? Because you have to rethink through. You have to think about your own past. You have to think about where you're coming from. So there you go. You know, for me, that was a kind of, you know, it's not like I'm unveiling the truth. I'm giving this massive conspiracy. But once you start putting these pieces into a narrative, you try to make an analysis that can guide you somewhere. So that was the main. And what I've been looking so far was actually I've been watching John <laughs> <laughs> and I've been looking at Scott Ritter analysis because it's always important to, this is something that I really struggled. And I also, and you know, I would like to hear your cuts on this is uh, trying to maintain a balance between, you know, the battlefield, the military analysis and how much this carnage can really be kept outside of that analysis. Because sometimes I'm like, yeah, the resistance is working, it's doing something there. There is a battlefield. They're not controlling, but they're killing, killing, killing. You know, that is something I really struggle. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I do have a few things that I can get out of that. And, you know, the balance between the carnage and the military analysis, I think we, we always struggle. We look for analogies and and it's natural, especially with Israel Palestine, to look at like Hezbollah and and previous rounds of warfare between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. You always look to the immediate past, but like as this goes on longer, I'm starting to think of Vietnam. I'm starting to think of Algeria. And I'm starting to think of these wars that go on really long and they're guerrilla conflicts. And you mentioned Ritter. I've been following Ritter too, but like Ritter is one of the only ones that I've continued to follow. I was following Ritter because of Russia, Ukraine. And I have to say this, you know, again, we're all friends here. I have, to, I have pretty low expectations of the pro-Russia military analysts in terms of their ability to understand Palestine. It's partly because let's just say, they're not necessarily anti-colonial in their mindsets, you know, just because you're pro, you know, it's a conflict ultimately between two European countries. And there are people who think of Russia not as part of the global South. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I, I don't need to say too much more about it, but let's, but Ritter has been, I think, really clear. And he's been very, uh, you know, he wrote this piece where he said, you know, why I don't stand with Israel and never will again. And he's been getting more and more strong. And I also think that he, so, so there's the ideological side, but there's also the fact that this is a guerrilla war. And, you know, Russia, Ukraine, you know, you can talk about where the lines are on the map, who has more firepower, who can bring more specific firepower to bear on at a specific time. You can talk about armored advances and 
taking key points on the map you know who has the high ground here if they take this village and they get this salient i mean this type of war has been going on in that type of terrain for you know you know this is where world war ii was fought this is where uh lots of world war one was fought but guerrilla war is different you don't get guerrilla war by looking at lines on the map and you don't get what's going on by looking at who controls what territory and you can't understand who's winning based on firepower and you can't understand who's winning based on even who's losing the most lives because guerrilla war is asymmetric guerrilla war doesn't work the same way so when you look at the military situation as you would russia ukraine of course it's a it's it's hopeless for the palestinians but like by that logic vietnam shouldn't have won by that logic uh, the algerians shouldn't have won by that logic no guerrilla war the kenyans the mau mau shouldn't have won against britain and so on the list goes on and on and on so asymmetric guerrilla warfare is a thing the other thing mateo that i wanted to say was in terms of like hanging on i mentioned this john and i were on rob russo's excellent twitch the other day and i said that um one of my personal analytical premises is never to underestimate the other side never to underestimate them in terms of intelligence or depravity the same goes for the resistance like they do know what they have and they know israel better than we do so just like try to remember we might be surprised by the depravity but they probably are not they probably know what they're facing better than we do how about you nora where are you in all this it's really overwhelming i'm with you when you say that it's never been this bad before and it had you know i just and it keeps getting worse every day and just the overwhelming number of unspeakable atrocities that Israel is committing hour by hour, it, it becomes not only difficult to keep track of, but kind of impossible to um, to navigate just emotionally as, as a human, like how to even process all of it. And like you said, we're not, we're not there. We're not, I don't have direct family there. You know, we have a lot of friends and colleagues, but um, it's just unimaginable for people who do have family or who are there. You know, like here in the U.S., I was talking about this with a friend yesterday who was like, how do we, you know, here in this country, like everybody's off work and school for next week because it's, you know, Thanksgiving holiday and people are running around talking about, you know, what, are, oh, what, like, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? And, and my, my friend was saying like, every time someone asked me that question, I just want to like stick a gun in my mouth. Like, how are we even functioning? How are people even talking about this when, when we are witnessing a relentless genocide taking place with no, no let up? It's unrelenting how savage the Israeli army is operating. And here we are like taking our kids to soccer practice. And um, I'm dealing with, I, I don't think it's, it's not uh, fatigue in any way. I think that what's keeping me going is just pure rage at this point. And I haven't even been able to to feel the weight of the grief yet. I talked about that with my personal therapist and she was 
she was concerned, but also like very understanding that, you know, well, you haven't had time to like sit down and, and have a good cry. And I'm like, yeah, no, there's no time. There's not even any like emotional space for me to do that. I don't know. We're just, we're coping. I'm coping. Uh, we're all figuring out how to cope and how to contain this, this unbridled anger uh, and rage and disbelief. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. And then at the same time, I'm like, you know, these like Kassam mixtapes come out on Twitter. John was just tweeting about. And it's it like, you know, along with the unbridled rage, I'm like, I'm so, there's there's just so much pride that I feel. And Palestinians are not, uh, I'm not, I'm not Palestinian. They're, you know, this is not my struggle, but but there is a universal, like international pride that people all over the world are feeling when these kinds of videos come out showing the remarkable courage and bravery of these guerrilla fighters who are taking on one of the most vaunted militaries in the world and delivering blows that the Israeli army never saw coming and then we're seeing what's happening with Yemen and you know the the forces there that are doing their part and of course Hezbollah in the north that's doing its part and Israel can't come back from this. So that's talk, something else. You Nora, know, can, that's, can you talk about the ship uh, news today? Well, it's People still morning for me and I'm, I still haven't gotten through all the news items yet. I just saw like the headlines and some of the photos that have come out. I, you know, if Mateo or John has anything else to say about the ship, they're making Israel unsafe anywhere in the region. You know, whether it's in the Red Sea or in the Mediterranean, <laughs> Israel is not going to proceed with business as usual after this. They're making sure of that. Basically, that Yemen's Navy boarded and seized. With, yeah, and with is, an helicopter. Yeah, they landed uh, on this vessel and they seized what the Israeli army said that partly owned. Yeah, the Galaxy right. Leader. You you yeah. you sent this actually. Yeah. Right? Yes, 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 yes. The incident yeah. of the hijacking of a cargo ship by the Houthis near Yemen in the Red Sea is a very serious incident on a global level. This is a ship that left Turkey on its way to India with an international civilian crew without Israelis, meaning flags of convenience meaning this is way this is the way all shipping works throughout the global economy. Why is the Israeli military so upset about it? They said it's not an Israeli ship. The ship Galaxy Leader, not only is it not Israeli, it was leased from a British company to a Japanese company. The British company that leased the ship to the Japanese is partly owned by the Israeli businessman Rami Unger. Any condition, connection to Israel is purely coincidental. And, and what I said on our group chat before we got on the air was like, even Israel is trying to distance itself from Israel at this point. I mean, that it's kind of significant and not, of course, their intention, but this is what we're seeing. But like, why didn't why didn't Britain and Japan <laughs> right. object? Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. their ship, right? Like, yep. Yep. <laughs> the only other reaction I have to Nora, I don't know where whether you guys have this, but it's like personal life wise, I'm sort of like just trying to avoid contact with people that I don't know are Politics. solid. It's not yeah. exactly like a boycott. It's just that like, it's like, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to have to hear a, a talking point. No, I don't want to have to hear a genocidal talking point. No. Like, I don't want to have to, no. you know, cause I can't, I can't like 
when we work on this, it's work. And it's like, in my life, I can't really be the guy that like, responds to talking points and debates and stuff. Like, I just, I can't do it. I can't do both. So I don't know if you guys are having that experience. That's been. Oh, yeah. I'm told I'm in total seclusion for most people. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm self canceling. <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah. self canceling. It's just complete self canceling. Yeah. And it's also like you meet people you, you know, and you're just like, oh, yeah, there. Uh, <laughs> yes, you know? yes, yes. <laughs> Who's gonna be the one to say? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So, oh yeah yeah you don't want to talk about that i mean it's if the only reaction i had to nora is that the sense of normality i don't think it's there i don't think we can find it i don't think we should even try to look for it it's it's been it's been a you know a struggle for me for us it's unprecedented it's going to stay like that and uh and yeah i mean we have to sail it through i don't know if we're going to make it but uh but that's that's how I feel. I mean, this is not normal. To me, this yeah. is not normal. It's just no. not. It's not. It can't be. This is not normal. It's not. Yeah. But it's also, it's becoming me at the same time. Yeah. You know, like, I'm, I've, you know, what I, you know, when sometimes, you know, you have this hyper sensitivity to things. Now I can feel everything inside me. Yeah. That's and trauma. it's so clear. Not a professional therapist, but I've read enough to know that that's trauma. Uh, okay, John, you're up. Okay, well, thanks for having me at the trauma therapy session. Yeah, this week was just brutal, like watching the concerted attack on the hospital for the last 10 days, I think even shocked people who are thought that we were ready for that. I mean, just the like the carnage of the last six weeks, but then to try to wrap your brain around that carnage happening without functioning hospitals to help people it's difficult to to wrap your brain around. I talked to medical professionals who are affiliated or adjacent to Shifa, and I I find it hard to even understand the level of what they're saying. Like I, I have to ask questions that seem like such basic questions because we can't believe what it would look like to to operate a hospital without supplies, without fuel, without water. And everything is getting to the point where it's so critical that when they're making these kids go on these almost death marches, in some cases, down to the south to get out of Gaza City, and you just think about kids not having eaten and drunk water, and then walking these incredible distances, like the minimum distance that you have to walk, and no cars, no vehicles are allowed. The minimum distance through the buffer zone is five kilometers. So if you just started at the buffer zone and left and stopped at the end of the buffer zone, which is, of course, not what anyone's doing, they're coming from further away than that, and they're walking further south than that, just even that alone, because it's framed in the media as as like a humanitarian pause, and, and it's kind of almost like your brain is is schooled to think about it like this is a good thing that people are are able to leave as a is a good thing. And we don't really have time or the inclination to really dig down in that, like to, to even hear the stories of what it what it is like to do that walk for people who survived. It's just brutal. And then now we're starting to see the stuff that, I mean, we worried about for this whole war that 
when you push everybody into these, you know, two or three places in each neighborhood, and there's thousands of people sleeping at these United Nations schools with, with nothing, no defense, no protection at all, sleeping out in the open. And then Israel's starting to hit those places. And it's just that the number of casualties that comes from that, from pushing people into one spot and then hitting them when they're all clustered together like that, it's so brutal. And then it's kind of like you you wake up the next day and it's like, is there time to go back to yesterday's horrors? Like yesterday was an absolutely brutal day in the Gaza Strip. The massacre at that UN school, I think we're going to hear about that again. That's the kind of thing that comes up in a war crimes trial for sure. It's just so cowardly. It's so brutal. And to try to think about how people are are existing in that. Yeah, it's really, really difficult. I don't leave the house, so I haven't had to navigate any of that. The only way I know what day it is is because I keep a a log of all of the Kassam attacks. And so each day when it rolls over at, at midnight, I put the next day, what the day number of the war, what the day number of the ground war is. And I feel like that's my only connection to understanding one day to the next because you don't really get an opportunity to even process the day before that happened. And then you're kind of confronted with the next day. And the scale of all of this is unprecedented, as Matteo said. And, and that's part of the story here, is that it is unprecedented, that the scale is so enormous that there are too many stories to cover because there's too much happening. There's too many Israeli troops inside the Gaza Strip massacring people. There's too many concentrations of people. There's too many death marches that are happening on small levels because before people did the long march, they all did short marches where they where they walked a kilometer or two to try to get out of the neighborhood that they were in before they ended up deciding to go south. And you don't really get I'm I'm not suggesting that we need to be able to you know, process all of this as as some part of this war. Like when you compare it to what people are living on the ground, I I I have a hard time. I try just to not talk about it too much and just stay working. But the scale and the communications that we're getting from our friends in Gaza, you know, they they disappear for two and three days. Like to try to process that, like what that means and and how you should behave in those three days. I am always concerned because what Nora said, because it's not my family, because they're my friends, because they know that we have a high tolerance for this kind of stuff. I'm not hassling my friends, constantly asking how they are, because I know every communication is precious. And I feel as though part of my responsibility of knowing that is to not ask them how they are. And so, you know, you're constantly in this personal dance between like, if they just give me a thumbs up on their message, maybe I won't think for the next 72 hours about all of the horror that might befell them. But then you see the footage of like, you know, everybody's phones hooked up to the, the last little bit of battery so that they can communicate with their own families because own families are all split up. Everybody had to split up. I mean, a lot of the reason people split up was because people didn't want to lose their entire family in one bomb. So the mom took the kids one way and the and the father or grandparents take the kids the other way um, because they don't all want to die in one spot. <laughs> I mean, honestly, 
they don't want to survive that. It's not so much that they don't all want to die together. They're terrified of, of being the only one that survives in a bombing. And a lot of what people are saying right now is like, I don't know what the word is, but like, fortunately, fortunately, they all died. Like, fortunately, there's not an eight-year-old kid who just lost their entire family or a, a mother who just lost all of her kids and has to figure out how to walk by herself down to Rafa to figure out where she's going to live for the next where are people going to live for the next six months, nine months? It's pouring rain. It's winter. There's nowhere for anyone to live. There's like this whole other horror that is coming like the day after this of like they've wiped out, you know, I don't know what the numbers are. We're, we're basically trying to count from satellite footage, like how, what percentage of Gaza City is gone? Is it, you know, it was one third last week. Is it half now? They've talked about they want to go to at least two thirds of the city destroyed. Um, and the main reason for that is because they're not going down in the tunnels. They have a standing order that they're not allowed to go down in the tunnels. So the only military objective of what they're doing is to drop the buildings on top of the tunnel entrances and hope that that solves the problem because they have no intention of going down and fighting these fighters that they know are in the Gaza Strip. For all these civilian massacres that they've carried out, even the most exaggerated Israeli numbers, like let's just say their numbers are true. They haven't even claimed 3,000 dead fighters in this massacre of a war. So where's the 57,000 other fighters? Like, how are you going to claim victory over something when we know that there's a minimum of 60,000 fighters? Oh, no, you know, no, no, John. Seymour Hirsch says there's only 20,000 and apparently they've mapped the tunnels and uh, it was 10,000 less and uh, it's a cakewalk. That was the last article that I saw. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there might be a time to talk about Seymour Hirsch just because it's interesting that he's basically just relaying Israeli sources and American sources. And it's so clear that the Israelis have no clue how this goes, right? Like his article a couple of days ago said Yahya Sinwar, who's the head of the Politburo of Hamas, but who was the founder of the Qassam Brigades. He's a fighter. He was in prison his whole life for being a fighter. He came out of prison and he merged the political Hamas movement with the Qassam Brigades, which is its source of strength. And Seymour Hirsch said that he was good, that Sinwar was after all this, after all these decades in jail, after all of this incredible October 7th action, that Seymour Hirsch from the Israelis said that that Sinwar was going to walk with the captives to Shifa and surrender at Shifa. I don't want to be the one to tell it to the Israelis, but Yahya Sinwar is not surrendering at Shifa. And none of these Qassam fighters who are 25 years old and have only lived the horror of this Israeli war, you think they're surrendering? I can't no. tell you how much they're not surrendering. <laughs> no, but the, these are okay. This is like where therapy meets uh, strategy. And like, Nora, you were talking about how you haven't had time to grieve. It's been like the exact opposite for me in the sense that like I was crying all the time at the beginning. It felt a little more fathomable at the beginning. 
So like I would think of the children and I would look at my children and, you know, I would lose my mind. And as it's gotten like to that aggregate numbers and absolutely unfathomable level, I've stopped trying to fathom it. And I'm just like, okay, limited room of maneuver, limited things we can do. Let's absolutely focus on them. And so like, obviously we're doing media you know, I talked to, you guys talked to Kala uh, Walsh from Palestine Action. I talked to Kala and Fergie from Palestine Action. And they, you know, they had this focus where they were like, we have to go, everybody's direct action should be focused on Albert Systems, the $10 billion flagship of the Israeli military industrial complex. And if all the global action around the world, these hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people all independently come up with ways to do that then that will be like a really good focus so okay so we have some ideas of what we can do here and i'm gonna do them and then it's like watching then it's watching what the armed resistance is doing and trying to understand the logic of guerrilla war on the other hand the last thing i wanted to say because john you were talking about cowardice the last 10 days were hard in terms of carnage, but the last 10 days were incredible in terms of cowardice. I don't know what kind of army displays cowardice so proudly for the whole world. And I don't know what is happening. Like, I keep saying this, like, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what canada is doing i don't know what the americans are doing like i don't know what they're doing they're, did you guys see that like big buff guy at the blackboard of a classroom <sighs> smashing the children's like spelling bee certificates <laughs> like, i did see that yeah what are they doing why yeah. would that be a thing you know and like planting the flag on the hospital and like bragging about blowing up this part of the hospital and then that part of the hospital and then taking selfies of like planting snipers in schools and shooting people with white flags one person i follow on twitter q q anthony i think it's noble q ali is the handle and he was like i feel like this is like a war on the meaning of words like it's a mm -hmm. war on on like it's like a direct attack on your brain because it's like this is military action this is military victory this is how a military campaign is prosecuted and so that the but the but strategically speaking right the US is shipping there's like so many shipments i think john you mentioned in the live streams like the 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 amount of ammunition it's like these 50,000 more artillery shells uh, you know however many more missiles um however many more bombs so they're not going to run out of those things but it's you you don't you don't see shipments plane loads of tanks because the tanks are heavy and i don't think it's a coincidence that one of the most finite elements of the israeli arsenal being armored vehicles is what all of the resistance efforts appear to be focused on and all the videos you see and it's like when they run out of armor which if they want to do this war for a long time they're gonna run out of armor it can't be replaced like bombs can or shells can they are gonna have to change their tactics 
and their strategies. That doesn't mean they're going to go in with infantry and not armor. It means they're <laughs> going to just leave and bomb, right? So there are certain things that click for me in terms of like, oh, that's what they're trying to do. Like, that's what the resistance is doing here. While and every day that Israel was bragging about dismantling a different ward of Shifa Hospital, Qassam was destroying up to double digits of armored vehicles. So I don't know. At least immobilizing yeah. them. I don't, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure if destroyed is doing right. a lot of heavy lifting in those two things. Sure. I think sure. the, the tanks are incredibly well armored. You have to hit them in a particular way, yeah. but they're being at least damaged in such a way that they have to be dragged away right. and repaired in the field, which just implies more logistics for the Israelis. And we're still seeing videos now three weeks on where they're getting hit from behind in yeah. neighborhoods where they're not right. outside their tank controlling the intersection. So when they're saying they're like going block by block, if somebody comes in behind you yep. <laughs> and shoots at you with an RPG, you didn't clear that block. Do you own that block? <laughs> yeah. Who owns that block exactly? And then even the fighting, the combat videos that we saw, like from Beit Hanun, which we've seen from satellite images, is basically been virtually wiped out. The Qassam fighters are fighting from building to building. Like they're in the next building over. Yeah. Yeah. So that's about whatever the opposite of cleared is. If you're being hit from an adjacent building, then you are fighting close quarters combat, which is very far from cleared. Yeah, It's not clear that the Israelis are going to be able, like Gallant, the defense minister, who's, you know, it's important to note that Gallant, the defense minister and the prime minister are both losing their jobs right that this they're <laughs> they're dead men walking and so they do talk a lot more yeah, than the they other people a lot of trash yeah yeah so they're both lame ducks who are talking in an effort to sound strong to cover up for the fact that should israel survive for the next hundred years every school kid is going to learn about who the prime minister was on october 7th when this catastrophic failure of everything that Israel had built over the last 75 years, right? Like the way that these frontline settlers who are armed are integrated into the kibbutz security and how the kibbutz security is interconnected with the police and then the police are interconnected with the army. And that's the thing that the Qassam Brigade's completely disabled. It's like they knew exactly how that functioned and we're able to disable it. So Gallant and Netanyahu are both talking the most, but yeah, Gallant said the other day that they're going to take months and that they're going to move to the South. And I don't know, the Economist headline on their weekend story was that the, the war in the North is almost over. I'm not sure that I would put that prediction down on that because that's not how guerrilla warfare works. The idea that we think that that the Qassam Brigades threw all their most important fighters and all their most important resources at a fight that would last for three or four weeks, that doesn't seem to make any sense. These are the guys who decided with 1,500 went across the border, but Abu Ubaidah said 4,500 fighters were involved in the planning and execution of October 7th. 
it doesn't seem to make a ton of sense in guerrilla theory to just throw those all, you know, at, at the sharp spear of the Israeli invasion. They're going to wait until you are in a fixed place till they can figure out their own. Cause a lot of the battlefield is changing every day, right? Like dropping buildings on top of their tunnel entrances is it's not nothing. It's it a closes setback. that. Yeah. It's it closes that entrance but in a lot of ways, it also makes it more secure because yeah. they're really never going into that tunnel entrance if there's a 15-story building on top of it. But the whole way that the network of tunnels works, the spider web style, is that you should be able to, to re-access the same core tunnel line. So it might take Kassam a couple of weeks to fully understand what this massive carnage that Israel is inflicting, you know, 15,000 airstrikes on this tiny little territory when you don't have necessarily the same ability to be up on the, on the ground level scouting everything, it serves that it would take a little bit of time for them to have the tunnel network work to their favor and hit these fixed Israeli positions. But you have to imagine that that part of the war is coming. I don't want to predict, but that, that would be the most, to me, would be the most elementary things about October 7th. You don't launch that attack on October 7th if you only think you can fight for three weeks. Exactly. You would wait one more year until you could fight for many weeks. And, and if we don't want to use the number 60,000, like 60,000 fighters is the number that I've been using because I think we can be confident that there's 40,000 Qassam fighters. And, you know, there's thousands of Islamic Jihad and, and thousands of Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades. There's lots of unaffiliated people. All of those people are, are their battlefield changes every day. And so it, it takes them a little time to figure out what where, you know, where the places to hit are, where the concentrations are. All of that stuff serves to me that that stuff comes later, not at the beginning. And the way that they've mass produced these anti-tank shells, anti-tank rounds, they presumably have enough to fight for months because they knew that this was going to happen. And if if they did, if they weren't prepared to fight for three weeks, or uh, the Israelis think that they can starve them out by not having you know food for a few weeks, that I don't think that that makes a ton of sense. So I think that the the guerrilla war is has barely even really begun yeah. in a lot of ways the way that they attacked the israelis what was not like a guerrilla army it was like a, a proper yeah. army right like yeah. they were structurally attacking their advances yeah. and i think that then then they'll they'll melt into a guerrilla army that has the capacity you know to to fight probably for a long time would be my guess yeah so this is the question of like who's whose time whose side is time on right so every day the the humanitarian catastrophe gets worse and israel has been saying things like you know we need time right we have a we have a quote from one of these commanders general aviv kohavi and he says you know time 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 he says all we, we need is time we need to help the u.s give us time the U.S. gives the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but like, you know, their economy. So Israel's economy obviously is losing hundreds of millions a day, you know, should direct action campaigns and in, in the Western side of things step up that could that could go higher. 
Israel is, yeah, they're not going to run out of weapons or anything, but they they could, uh, their economy is in trouble. Their, their project as like a nice place to go or a nice place to be, or like even nice people to be around. Uh, it's not, it's not going, it's not going so well. I think everybody was obviously a little disappointed by that Islamic country's OIC summit, right? Okay. And it's fine. Like they didn't do anything <laughs> and they, and, and you know, they didn't do an oil, they didn't announce an oil embargo or whatever, but like that was the first meeting and it was a meeting of everybody together. So like Assad was there and Saudi King was there and they were all there. Erdogan was there and like they were all there and that already is different. And it's also like, um, like a sign of like, we're not divided on this issue whatever the the declaration was weak but that i i don't know i don't know if that was nothing i i think that was not nothing uh it wasn't much i don't know mateo what do you think i want to start from your reflections on the israeli economy because uh i when i think about israel you know i really think this is a rentier state you know it's basically everything is coming from the u.s so i mean i'm not saying that it doesn't make sense to say that the israeli economy is going down but you know it's it's being pumped by the US. So this is like Ukraine. You know, the Ukraine is still standing. <laughs> no, no. Um, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> standing? Yeah. No, no, standing. Standing, standing yeah. is too, it's too much of a stretch, but you know what I, what I meant is that that it's at this point internally it doesn't matter, you know, how much the Israeli hotels are, you know, sending emails asking for a donation as long as, you know, the, the you know daddy sends money uh, from the US so that's so on, on that front I I don't know I think that they can withstand as long as they have the support of the West the situation I think the question of time and I talked a little bit about Rania with this and I think this is important I connect to what John was saying which is you know once you start you get into a war of this magnitude which is a war of liberation it's probably you know it's an early stage we don't know where it's gonna go maybe you know you're gonna have a you know something about the hostages which we can go back and talk about it because i'd like to know what you're thinking about on that front the political horizon and the way the resistance has been operating in, in relation to time uh, i see this is where the whole anti-imperialist according to me conception of time comes in and you need to be patient. You can't be into that reactionary, wanting to vi mode of violence. You just want to bring back the status quo and you want to do it violently. And I'm going to do it now. This is a steady, you know, path towards, you know, like, I, I don't want to say liberation now, but it's, it's, it's a political project built as, on steadfastness, on patience. And we've seen also this coming from uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah speeches, and uh, and even looking at Hezbollah actions, by the way, the Northern Front is on fire. They, you know, uh, Lieberman, I think, was tweeting. It was, you know, they're losing on that front. They're really losing. They're losing the settlers. They've been actually protest on that front as well. So, and they've been, they're so like uh, targeted these attacks that they're, they're really capable of hitting the Israeli army very well. So on the question of time, I think this is where the regional equation comes in very much according to me and that's what you were talking about and i am not entirely sure how to answer that question now because the access is there has been showing that it's going to be there and they and there is definitely coordination between the different forces of the axis of resistance 
But at the same time, and again, I, 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 it's not a question of being positive, but you know, when you look at the battlefield, I cannot even fathom the idea that the axis of resistance prepared this war, this attack, thinking, oh, after October 7th, Saudi Arabia is going to switch on our camp. No so, way. Uh, there's no way. And yeah. the fact that you just said, I'm going to let you continue, but the fact that you just said you don't know how it's going to go regionally, that's already like different. Yes. That's different from a couple of years ago when you knew that Saudi Arabia would be totally. with Israel. You knew that yeah. uh, the UAE would be with Israel. You knew that Turkey would uh, be with Israel and not doing or Yeah, there are things anything. you could predict yeah. and be 99.9% .9 certain of. And now it's. Yeah, it's entirely un unpredictable from one day to the next. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I just yeah, I mean, like on the on that on just to conclude there, it's uh, it's uh, on, on the regional front. I think that as much as we're seeing what you were mentioning about the more we're going to see direct should direct attacks continue in the West, we're going to put more pressure, direct action. The same, you know, I think this the same, you know, like equivalence, uh, you know, applies to the to the region. And in the escalation of the war and the unity of the resistance, not the carnage, not the carnage, because the carnage is already there. And as in Saudi Arabia was the last one to send aid, a track of aid to Egypt. So I don't think it's the carnage is going to make a difference, but it's the unity of the forces in the battlefield, which will make them look at themselves and probably also a push from below if you know inshallah if that can take place but uh, that's that's the way i'm seeing uh and and i don't know john i want the question to you if uh, at some point you heard about this uh, establishment of a field hospital by jordan in nablus in relation mm -hmm. to what the west it's happening in the west bank and i was wondering if you heard that and if you have any idea i have some but i would like to hear it from you no, I, I did just hear that. Um, and I no, I don't have anything wise. I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. I, it was just because it seemed that the Jordanians are condemning much more strongly what's happening. And there is there seems to be, you know, that all the settlers have been armed in the West Bank. So sort of wondering whether the establishment in, in the Nablus area is an attempt to stop a possible takeover of the settlers of that area. I know Jordan's under a lot of pressure, right? They're largely a Palestinian state, and there's a lot of internal pressure in Jordan to act. I know that they they were forced to do uh, token gestures in Gaza as well with a field hospital. I just think with this humanitarian thing, like we need these countries to run the blockade, like run the blockade with one of the like Turkish uh, hospital ships or this is a crisis of unbelievable proportions that require people to do something from these other countries. And Kassam is not asking for that. <laughs> they mocked that. But it's really unbelievable that Turkey, with its population inflamed as well, and with the US too, because it's not just like you're running an Israeli blockade and the Israelis are nuts and they'll do what they did to the Mabi Marmara and drop special forces and kill everybody on the ship, you now have American escorts all over the region too. So America's got to be involved in this. If Turkey, a NATO ally, said that they were they showed a ship being loaded in a port in Turkey, show put a humanitarian flag on it, you know, had unarmed people on the ship and floated the ship towards the Gaza coast, they need 
one of these ships that's a power station. Like yeah. the French have one. Uh, most countries have them, these sort of and floating power plants, floating. I mean, that's the thing. People need power in Gaza. They need fuel and they need power. They need to turn on the basic uh, hygiene supplies as the, like the bare minimum or people are going to start dying from diseases and stuff that's like a hundred years old, right? Yeah. That should have been uh, in a modern... That? Did you guys see the Israeli, what's his name, Giora Island, a general who said the international community warns of a humanitarian catastrophe and severe epidemics? We must not shy away from it. After all, severe epidemics in the south of this trip will hasten victory. Yeah, I mean, they're open that's, about it. That's the, where they're the, at. This is this is like <laughs> genocide intent 101. They're welcoming the, you know, I mean, this is this has been their policy for decades right bombing so-called bombing gaza back to the stone age they're doing it yeah people are 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 dying of easily treated skin infections now um hospitals you know intensive care units are now because they've been not only like taken offline there's no electricity no water no antibiotics but they've been bombed and doctors have been sniped these major medical centers are now running as like basic first aid clinics because that's all they have so israel is their intention over the last hundred years has been of ethnic cleansing to, to ethnically cleanse as much as possible i mean we saw we saw this during the nakba we saw this before the nakba we saw you know for every year every hour since and they're openly saying it and they're using this artificial this man-made humanitarian catastrophe in order to make it go quicker or you know it, it like they're bombing they're carpet bombing and then they're also letting children die of skin diseases and 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 you know things like cholera and dehydration and it's it's so depraved it's so depraved and you know they're trying to either kill people or push them out to the sinai um which i don't think is actually going to happen i mean uh, egypt yeah and then what i mean and yeah and then yeah. what exactly Egypt's not going to take them no yeah. egypt would face an incredible internal political crisis but, yeah. so, did you see about the, that tent on the the tent city on the coast that idea oh <laughs> yes they're going to build an artificial island <laughs> off gaza yeah what i wanted to say was like open-ended exterminist regimes U.S. history of warfare against indigenous nations is basically like genocidal warfare to get them to sign their land, right? Get them to sign on the dotted line, do everything, burn their, you know, murder, mass murder, kill children, murder, you know, burn their fields, lots of burning of crops. That's one of the, ta you know, main American way of war. Uh, there's a there's a book, The First Way of War, that I always go back to by Grenier. But like... um until you get them to sign their land away or mm -hmm. you know you're you're trying to get them to surrender the way that you get them to surrender is through the maximally depraved warfare but then there's the nazis and there's the israelis now where they're like we're not accepting surrender we don't even want you to surrender we have no no real thing that we want from you we're just going to keep killing until we're stopped somehow and the thing about that is you cannot win. That is not a winning mentality. That is a we're going until we're stopped mentality. So like it's it's like 
right now there isn't a coalition that is capable of stopping them uh, short term. But they're they're making it very clear that they're not going to stop until they're stopped. So everybody in the world, everybody in the region, everybody is thinking, how are how can we stop them? You have billions of people thinking that right now. You have billions of people in the world thinking, how can we stop Israel? And like sooner or later, we're going to figure it out, especially if the commitment on Israel's part is to go until they're stopped. So that's their only exit strategy at this point. It's, It's not a comfort. Like they're doing what they know how to do, which is only these things. They cannot, they can't win. It's not because they, they've set themselves and, and objectives that cannot be fulfilled. I don't know how, uh, you know, we have some idea and on the timeline that we're on of how that is, you know, could come about, but like they, they, they cannot win this. Let me just say that there's, Mateo said it, the North is on fire. The resistance is escalating daily uh, in the North. The north of the West Bank is also on fire. There's armed struggle in Tubas, Tolkarum, Nablus, Balata, Janine, constantly, like all day long, all night long, gunfight type stuff, like from the Intifada. We would easily be calling what's happening in the West Bank and Intifada at any other time. <laughs> Ansar Allah, if they want to join the war the way that they're joining this, downing American Reaper drones, um, attacking Israel with ballistic missiles and taking their ships off their coast. This is a multi-front war and all of those fronts, like the Ansar Allah, the Houthis, they want in. (laughs) They want in. They want to fight this this war. And I think that that just presents something for Israel that I I don't think that we've, we've confronted before. And I think the Israelis know that. Like Netanyahu said yesterday that they need to do this humanitarian pause to keep their international allies on board, yeah. right? So you don't actually see Kassam ever say that, oh, oh, we have to do this thing that we don't want to do because we yeah. have to keep our patron. Like, no, yeah. that's no. that's a very Israeli thing. And the Israelis yeah. are supposed to be in the empire. They're supposed to be the thing that is the sharp end They're of the spear for the empire. They're supposed to be a source of power. A source yeah. of it. They're not yes. supposed to be a liability. A sink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a sink of power. Yeah. Yes. The, 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 and there, there's a couple, that makes me think of a couple of things. One is, you know, it's one thing to be like, hey, Egypt, hey, Jordan, stand down. We've got tons of leverage on you. God knows what, you know, aid and finances and IMF and, you know, the ability to overthrow you, et cetera. Fine. But like, when when they're asking and the PA too, right? The PA in the mm-hmm. West Bank, the Palestinian Authority. But when they're asking them now to like, you know, so suppose uh, Ansar Allah rec- recruits fifteen thousand uh, fighters and they're trying to infiltrate somehow. Now you're going to ask Egypt to stop them. How hard is Egypt going to try to stop them? Yeah. No. How hard know. is yeah. Jordan <laughs> going to try to stop them? You're not. You're not asking them to to sit back and watch and let something happen you're asking them to do something for you to make sacrifices for you that's another level that that israel would be asking for what's in it what's in it for egypt then right what's in it for them to do that yeah these are these are things (laughs) yeah israel's leverage is is quickly fading 
I think, yeah. across the region. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, look at the, what they're asking is, is yeah. just, uh, it's too much. Also, I mean, what they're asking to the, to the U.S. public is becoming too much. Mm -hmm. To the Western public is becoming too much. And I am sorry I'm going to say this, but they are also laying the ground, unfortunately, in the way they are playing with the Holocaust memory and anti-Semitism. Yeah. They are making huge damages that yes. they will stay in our societies as well, you know, like, yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's really because, you know, there, it, it doesn't make any sense, you know, to to have... Uh, to to have a genocide being perpetrated under this uh, under these terms, you know, like why are you doing yeah. that? I mean, people people can see this, and the pro-Israel organizations in these countries are just lying and smearing and trying to get people fired and trying to yeah. get children in danger in yeah. high schools, in the name of 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 quote all Jewish people. I mean, it's yeah. so it's so insidious. They've they've conflated, you know, Judaism and Zionism. And yeah. now we're all dealing with the effects of this conflation of Judaism and Zionism, and it is terrifying, first and foremost for the Palestinians, but it's going to have generational effects all around the world. I think Jews are going to like make a complete break with Zionism and just be like, these are two different concepts, and I mean, we don't want anything to do with them. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I see like, that rift widening. Yeah. For That's sure. where it's going to have to. At least in the last yeah. five weeks. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think that's yeah. where it's very, have very to go. long overdue. I mean, we're yeah. 130 years overdue for. for yeah. That. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. They, they just, it's time. And yeah, yeah. That, that's past time. Um, one last thing in terms of my pro Russia military analysts that I secretly read. <laughs> One of the one of the I want to just read you this because it's really interesting. It, the, this one that I'm reading, it's he's called Simplicius the Thinker, and he's very right wing. At the Where end, he, find he, these people? he blames it all on the left. He's a I, you know I don't know who he is. He writes very well, so I think his first language is English, but he's okay. very pro Russian. Um, but he says, you know, this is this is like he says, look. We can take example from the defensive shield operation in 2002. There, Israel waged a similar incursion to cleanse Hamas and other groups. If you study that operation, it bears striking resemblance to everything currently happening. There were the same allegations of notable massacres. There was the dubious moral outrage from the West, including threats of major sanctions against Israel for war crimes, etc. The difference is, back then, they used a small force of 20,000. This time... Israel mobilized everyone in a truly apocalyptic show that appears designed to convey that they are going all the way. In reality, the mass mobilization of reservists could never have been about Hamas or Gaza. Some sources report Hamas fighters number less than 20,000. There you go. Uh, <laughs> that's for you, John. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's even much less than that. Israel already has an active force of 150,000 men to easily handle this. No, mm. the 360,000 on top was always meant to be a precursor for some type of total war against Hezbollah, which does seem to give credence to the idea about seizing South Lebanon, da 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 But the issue is Israel may not have read the cards right. They may have been counting on the full unconditional support of the U.S. and the West. They may not have foreseen the fatal vibe change, which has swept the rug out from underneath their feet. So when he talks about the 500,000 Israelis, he's like, look, 
if you have an army of 500,000, you can take tens of thousands of casualties without feeling it. So it's not likely that um, Hamas Hamas is going to be able to win a war of attrition that involves just, you know, defeating that many casualties. But again, I think this is a misunderstanding because and he says, look, Ukraine has lost about that many and they're still standing as Matteo said, but there's a lot of differences, right? Ukraine is a much bigger country. Um, in a guerrilla war, you're not willing to take that level of casualties. And then. Israel can't take that level of casualties. Exactly. I, they I don't, they so don't have 300,000 people to, um, to to throw into this war. And I think that's why they're going so carefully. And that's why they're so... Mm-hmm. Um, and each of their wars always end in spectacular uh, <laughs> troop deaths, right? Like that's how Lebanon, when they downed the helicopter in Lebanon and like they lost however many people it was it was like we can't take this anymore and that's basically Mm -hmm. in 2000 when they left south lebanon they left so fast they left their computers plugged in and their helmets hung up and they they just were like no we're out and they ran away and then at the end of the the operation defensive shield in 2002 that was the uh, reoccupation of the west bank when they destroyed janine and they Mm -hmm, said that they had destroyed islamic jihad out of janine And then right after that, there was the two most deadly, the two best planned, if you could put it that way, resistance operations that happened in the second intifada, both emanated from Janine car bomb. One was a car bomb that targeted a bus full of Israeli soldiers. um, And the other one was, uh, was a, was a car bomb that, that literally at that point in the intifada, they were escorting buses um, of soldiers with police cars Mm -hmm. and they attacked the bus through the police cordon. And, you know, at that time they had, the Israelis had said like, we, you know, we, we defeated, you know, Mm -hmm. Janine was in a, was looked like a moonscape. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, we defeated the resistance. They had arrested um, people in the Janine camp, it looked like a surrender. Um, but it, it just never is. That's just never the way that it works. And yeah. the idea that the Israelis can turn around, and even if they do win this war, like their settlers don't want to live in the north. No. Um, their settlers don't want to live on the border with Gaza right now. People aren't like, oh, let's go on a vacation to Israel right now. A lot of Israelis are. Yeah. polishing up their second passports and stuff like i don't think israel does have have a ton mm. of time you know and like yeah it makes me think of that taliban yeah uh, they have you the know watches. quote yeah you guys have the watches but we have the time <laughs> um it just it feels like um you know i think that there's this humanitarian pause prisoner exchange uh thing that uh seems to be um moving forward right now mm. that i think that it sounds like netanyahu's saying like we had to do this we didn't even want to do mm-hmm. this exchange mm. but the americans are basically saying like you have to do it you have to make it at least look like you're trying yeah. to get your people back yeah but plus justin i mean i was thinking about what you were saying uh you know, before about the war with Hezbollah. I mean, if I, if you, if we go through, uh, I don't know, if we go about this with a rational calculus, I mean, of the U.S. administration, yeah. I think the war with Hezbollah is a mistake. I would go directly. Yeah, I'd say. No, no, but I would go directly <laughs> with, to the source. I would go, yeah. I would actually bomb Iran. You know, right, it, right. if but the U.S. So... gets into the war, you know, if it needs to get to the war, like in this... But, Ritter, but Ritter's... um. Ritter's 
commented on this too. It's oh, yeah? not there's no campaign there's no US military campaign that can defeat Iran. There's no plan there's no plan on any book anywhere <laughs> written up for beating Iran. He's just like they're not going to yeah. let us. He's like if the blueprint blueprint was Iraq, everyone in the region let us gather all of our forces over a period of months. They're going to be they're going to be launching missiles continuously while we try to build it up. We're going to try to take their ports under that kind of fire. Then we cross mountains like like to get to Tehran on the ground. Like it just yeah. it's not I don't. Yeah, it's not. And, and Iran, like again, like Afghanistan, Iraq, when the U.S. Uh, attacked them, they had populations of like 20 million people. And I don't think they can do like Afghanistan today has 40, um, you know, I don't even know that they could. I don't even think they could do it today to Afghanistan. But like, no, to, no. to do it to Iran, which is, you know, hundred. How, I don't know how many mil, hundreds. It's like 100 million plus. I'm going to look it up right now. But yeah, there's no. It does make some sense that they would attack Iran um, before sparking the war with Hezbollah because Hezbollah has the capacity like within a few minutes to make Israel a really miserable place that I'm not sure that like I think it is possible that they fought in Iran instead of fighting in the hills of South Lebanon. Like if you're talking about (laughs) where the Americans strike from their um, from their uh, aircraft carrier strike groups, I'm not I don't know if they want to spark a war with Hezbollah, which is, I think, part of the reason. Also, just if we're talking about therapy, like <laughs> there is this point of this therapy where where we do talk to each other saying, like, what are they waiting for? Like, yeah, what is yeah. the line? Yes. yes. Sorry, John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but what does that line look like? And I don't I'm not trying to start World War Three here, but. No, no, but the, but the, but the, but if if it's the resistance, it's not a, it's not a, we go in a big way. Like that's never the way Iran. Yeah, it's just incremental. Yeah, that's never the way Iran. And that does incremental things. is happening for it's sure. There's no question. But, but, boiling, yeah, but it's an absolute boiling frog. Yeah. Situation and but that, that's the people's army. Yeah. I mean, that's a liberation that's, that's war. You know, exactly. you have to change the tempo of the war. You're not yeah. fighting to massacre people. Yeah. You're fighting for liberation. You have an idea there. That's, you know, yeah. I was actually rereading, uh, I'm sure you read it, but uh, Guevara on guerrilla method, you know, since the start. And you go mm-hmm. through it. And it's exactly, that's exactly what he's talking about. It's a different conception of the world, really. This is, it's not abstract. Yeah. When right. when Abu Obeida goes and says, we're not afraid of that, and you are so attached to life, yeah. That is what this is all about. It's time. It's time. It's completely different. We're fighting yeah. for a cause. We're not fighting to maintain an occupation, which you need it because you want to, you know, live under the privilege of imperialism. So yeah. it's, uh, this is, I think, this is where really the U.S. is stuck. What I'm afraid is how much wreckage can the U.S. bring to the world before it finally accepts yeah. that it needs to rethink its role in, internationally. When you look at that op-ed of... I mean, it's obviously it hasn't been written by Biden, but no, Biden's earpiece. Biden, <laughs> yeah. Biden sat down at the typewriter and, and uh, clicked away. Americans to lead us. Like? <laughs> <Of> Biden <laughs> yeah, with Blinken, okay. <laughs> like half sentences is going chat, off on chat, going... <laughs> chat GPT. Write me an op-ed. Yes, at Biden. that's probably literally what happened. Absolutely. 
anyone else mm-hmm. want to want to sum anything to sum up before we adjourn no i think we did a good job i do think that there is a show about the prisoner exchange that that yeah. is coming mm. like not mm. the one that's going to happen in the next couple of days but the one that actually involves like potentially releasing some of the most important guerrilla fighters and leaders of the palestinian movement that are in prison right now mm. um I feel like, and there's also a, an October 7th show that I think that we do yeah. because October 7th Absolutely. really did get sort of snowed under by everything that happened since. And it's been such an important, uh, it, it will be such an important moment to study in history. Mm-hmm. I think that we owe people an October 7th at, at some point. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it. We certainly have the knowledge. So, And lots of evidence like just keeps surfacing. Let's go go around where you can find everybody's work if people oh, are yes, listening yes. and aren't regular listeners. Why don't you start, Justin? Anti-Empire Project, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, JustinPedor.substack.com is the substack. I'll be dribbling out more writing there uh, probably every, I don't know, ten less than every 10 days. There will be something. Matteo should go next. Well, you know, I guess you guys are going to tag me somehow somewhere yeah. <laughs> on Twitter. So come here. <laughs> somewhere. And we're gonna have Matteo on the EI live stream. Yeah. Where you find Sina, where you find us, you'll find Matteo too. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us at the Electronic Intifada, electronicintifada.net, on YouTube, on Twitter at Intifada, Instagram, Electronic Intifada. Like we're everywhere. Um, can't miss us. And also at the brief at thebriefpodcast.com. And we do those live streams. So we're doing, uh, I don't know how quickly we're going to get this show up, but we do live streams um, for sure Mondays, usually then Monday, Wednesday, or Monday, Thursday. Um, And we do those regularly. So keep tuning back in for those because we try to stay on top of what's happening. And one of the interesting and really good parts about those live streams is that whenever possible, and it's becoming increasingly impossible, but we've had people from Gaza actually uh, joining in our conversations yeah. but yeah the blackout that's happening right now in gaza is very significant so i'm not but sure they weirdly did ship fuel for paltel right i saw i saw what i think was a re- reputable source saying that that yeah so they needed to give Paltel, fuel because but... the trucks hmm. they couldn't drive the trucks down to pick up the token amount of aid that's coming in so they actually had to release some fuel to 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 fuel the trucks that will come and mm-hmm. pick up the aid. Um, but it does sound as though they're getting closer to um, a first stages of a of an exchange that would involve a five-day humanitarian pause, which hopefully will at least restock um, the hospitals and give people an opportunity to um, to try to get the hospitals back functioning, I I find it absolutely unspeakable that yeah. that that closing down the hospitals in such a structural way. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that'll be at least part of that exchange. And Kassam has been trying to hand over these prisoners since the beginning. So yeah, yeah. I don't and see Netanyahu's, them. Obstructing. Netanyahu's probably yeah. been trying to kill them since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, yeah. did Abu Beida said yesterday that they lost contact with a group of people that were holding uh, some of the hostages? Because that's, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think they're losing contact sometimes with people that are in these tunnels and the tunnel, if the tunnels collapse. Um, yeah. yeah. But one of the things about, and this, we know this from the 2014 war is that um, you can still live in the tunnels and also the Palestinians dig the tunnels as 
as this is happening. So there's, mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the beauties of Gaza is that it's a sandy clay mm -hmm. that allows for that kind of like actually to try to dig yourself out of the situation. But yeah, they're losing contact with their, with the, with the captives yeah, um, because the captives are all in Gaza city being subjected to this relentless bombing. Yeah. And then the other thing was that they found uh, Israel tried to make a big deal about how they found one of the injured people that was taken. They found their body at, at Shifa Hospital, which was mm -hmm. like, yeah, they took your people to the hospital. Like, yeah, yeah, that's right. They found, yeah, they found evidence the ho the captives were at the hospital. Like, yeah, yeah. the injured yeah. ones. They treat yeah. injured people at hospitals. Well, yeah, that's more of like re rewriting the rules of logic and reason and the meanings of words, but. I'm sure we'll come back to that another time too. Seems right, to be thanks, a recurring guys. theme. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. I'll stop there. Thanks, everyone. The brief is produced by Pierre Loisel in Quebec, Nora Barrows Friedman in California, and I'm John Elmer in Toronto. Our music is by Greg Wilson. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. Find us on the web at thebriefpodcast.com and support our work by subscribing at Patreon. <laughs>